1: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area. Call toll free,
2: 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line, For those who are listening to us for the very first time, a special welcome for the next hour. We will be taking people's questions. Maybe it's an area of theology or a particular issue of ministry or application to your home or family or church, you're looking for biblical help. If I can be of help by God's grace, I will. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Big week here. We have Todd Friel coming to Community Bible Church for Valentine's Banquet for our members and their lost friends and unchurched people and the like. Uh, That will be Friday night, but you can hear him Sunday morning. I would invite you to our Sunday morning 11 o'clock service here at 638 Paris Island Gateway in Beaufort. Todd Friel's heard on 800-some stations, including WAGP, every weekday, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. and on 135 uh, television stations across the nation. So it should be a great time. I hope you can come and join us if you don't have a place to go. Well, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll get started.
0: All right, good morning, Pastor Cole. Our first question comes from Jackson out of Lynchburg, Virginia. He writes... I am a student at Liberty University, and every week, every week the school brings in two guest speakers to address the student body. The guests range from athletes to pastors to politicians and usually involve a testimony, story, or message of some sort. This past weekend, Sadie Robertson came, but she was different from other women who have spoken. She told a story, then subsequently opened the word and presented a message about compromise in the Christian life which was very relevant and applicable, especially for college students. I am curious, however, if her serving as a teacher to a mixed audience was unbiblical. I know in First Timothy chapter 2, it says women are to be quiet, receive instruction with submissiveness, and that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Would this apply to Sadie's lesson, or am I overthinking it? Thank you.
2: No, you're really not overthinking it. Actually, you're right in sync. I've spoken a couple times at the Liberty Convocation. They have like 10, 12, 13,000, I don't remember, students who gather in at least the times I spoke during that era, the range, the standards were very high. Uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. really, I think, did a fantastic job in steering the school, trying to keep them in sync with scripture and scripture is clear on this but more and more institutions local assemblies especially the parachurch movement are basically saying well it doesn't apply to us Uh, and again i don't know who the current chaplain is there i've known a number of them over the years at liberty but the rationale typically that is used and he is the one the chaplain of the university at least it's always been true when i've spoken there uh, he is the one who decides who will come and what are the parameters, and uh, what are the things they can share, and so on. And and so what is often being done today—Liberty University is obviously not a local church. It's under the auspices of a local church, Thomas Road Baptist Church, but it itself is an independent parachurch organization of sorts. And so what the parachurch organizations like Campus Crusade and others are doing is they're saying, well, this doesn't apply to us— this only applies to the local church on a Sunday morning or some other time when they are gathered for teaching and for instruction. And I will say, let me just say parenthetically that the silence in Scripture where a woman is to be silent in church, it's obviously a qualified silence. When Paul speaks to that effect in 1 Corinthians, he's already spoken to the issues that where women can speak. Obviously, women are to sing in church. That's a given. That's a command we're all to sing. Ephesians 5. They're not to be silent in that respect. Uh, You also know that a woman could prophesy in church. Uh, The modern-day equivalent would not be a woman preaching a sermon, but a woman reading a passage of Scripture. And again, uh, what would take place in the first century, because the Bible was still being written, and there were very few books that were being written, um, when 1 Corinthians was uh, penned, if, you're, if you remember, Matthew was the first gospel, and Paul had three missionary journeys. On the first missionary journey, right at the end, he wrote Galatians to refute some of the legalists who had come into the church and robbed the freedom of the saints and their need to depend on the Spirit rather than human effort in the process of sanctification. And then on his second missionary journey, Paul wrote first in Second Thessalonians, and then on his third missionary journey, uh, Paul wrote first and Second Corinthians and then towards the end of it, Romans. And so when Corinthians was written, there was only a handful of books in the New Testament that had been penned. My point in all of that is that at this point, God would speak directly through a woman and she would prophesy of course this, the the spirit of pro- prophets were subject to other prophets everything needed to be confirmed by two or three witnesses and indeed if it were a uh, prophecy from the lord a direct word of revelation it wouldn't be contradictory to previous revelation because satan is a great counterfeit and that's why john says test the spirits to see if they be of god but people take that verse out of context. They take First Timothy out of context, and they say, well, you know, a woman can preach. Well, the prophesying that Paul is speaking of is not preaching a sermon, and then he's very clear with the word teach. He said, a woman must re- quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then he gives two reasons, one from the order of creation, and then secondly, how the fall unfolded. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve. She was created as his helpmeet. And then he says it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression, namely that because she had stepped out of her God-ordained role, she opened herself up to deception. Now, unlike uh, Eve, Adam sinned Was greater, he sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing. And then in verse 15, he underscores that women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self restraint. So he wants to focus on simply not what women cannot do, but what they should do. And what they should do is be involved in the raising of godly children. That's no small, small role. My wife would often say, Well, I can teach men, just little men and leaders, future leaders, who will take a significant role in the church, whether they are lay people or pastors, whatever the situation might be. So you can't say this applies only to the local assembly. In fact, right before this command, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, in gold or pearls or costly garments, but by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, again, I have a whole series of messages on these verses. In fact, I go through in that series every verse in the Bible that the current-day egalitarians are using to defend women being pastors, women preaching over men even if they're not pastors like a beth moore she's you know preaching and teaching for a few decades now over men in violation of scripture and so look if this applies only to the local church do you say that a woman dressing modestly and discreetly only applies to the local church i hope not And I hope you recognize it doesn't apply simply in the local church, but wherever they are at, a woman who maybe dresses modestly when she comes to church, but very revealingly during the week is really playing the role of a hypocrite. And so God has his standards, and we are to adhere to those standards. And this applies in a Sunday school class if you have a mixed audience. Now, it's very different for a woman to stand up in church and share her testimony, That's different from her opening and expositing the Scripture. And it's very different, too, when a pastor says, well, we've given her permission to speak. She's under our authority. Listen, no pastor has authority to give authority that God expressly forbids. And so Liberty University is out of sync, and this is new. This is new. This has not always been true of Liberty. They have held to the highest standards when it comes to the role that men and women play at that school. So I'm disappointed to hear this. I'm assuming what you've reported here is accurate. If it is accurate, it's disappointing, and I have no reason to think that it's not accurate. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next caller or email. All right,
0: Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. We are going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Anthony from Beaufort, South Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question?
1: Good morning, Dr. Brogy. How are you all doing this morning?
2: Hey, good. Thank you, Anthony. Yes. What can we do to help?
1: Okay, congratulations on your new grandbaby.
2: Oh, we're we're grateful to the Lord for her. I can, I think I can
1: barely hear you. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah,
2: we can hear you fine. The problem is not on our side. It's on yours, but go Um, ahead.
1: I was reading and studying this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1. Okay. Specifically verse 4. Okay. And it speaks of him fasting and praying. And I believe that God honors fasting and praying, I believe, that God honored Nehemiah. My question is, I have two questions since I didn't call you in a while, Pastor. Uh, Should we fast regularly, or should we fast just when we think things are really, really bad? Now, my favorite TV pastor, Dr. Charles Stanley, quotes that fasting helps to focus our prayers and tap into the limitless power and wonderful plan of the Lord. Now, could this fasting be for personal reasons, like maybe healing our body? And last, would you share, or is it proper for you to share, how God worked in one instance in your life that you thought was really, really tough time in your life where God answered prayer, answered, and honored your fasting in prayer. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you because I can't hear you on my phone. i got to go back
2: okay. to my radio. All right, good. Well, let me first say this uh, to those who want to study this subject of fasting and prayer. I have a number of sermons on it. I think the most recent one I preached is when I did a series on the book of Daniel that was right before Revelation. And in Daniel 9, you find Daniel fasting. And I go through six or seven reasons why Christians should fast. Certainly, fasting was done in a time of crisis. And so you find that in Nehemiah 1. And I preach through the book of Nehemiah, and I walk through the whole scenario that he's facing and what would have motivated him to fast and to pray over the situation. And again, it creates an earnestness before the Lord. You know, when you are fasting and you're hungry, Uh, and you feel that little hunger pain, it's like a signal. This is an opportunity to pray. It's a reminder of why I am fasting and what it is that I'm bringing before the Lord. And even the time taken to go to a restaurant, to drive there, to eat lunch, to eat dinner, or if you're at home, to prepare the meal and to serve it and to clean up after it, that time is now available for something else, and it might be available for praying and for fasting. And so certainly there are many reasons that you find. I go through seven in that sermon on Daniel 9. I won't elaborate on all of those right now. But again, there is an assumption in Scripture that believers will fast. Jesus taught that in Matthew 6. He deals with three things that we are rewarded for, that when they're done in secret, um, God sees in secret and will reward you openly. When they're done for the eyes of men, then obviously the Lord is not pleased. And so he highlights uh, fasting, giving, and prayer. Now, I will say, parenthetically, that there are public expressions of all of these. And so while we pray in secret, there's a need for corporate prayer. When you pray, even in the same context, say, not my Father, but our Father. So there's an assumption that the church prays corporately, Uh, tomorrow night we'll meet and we'll gather and and we'll share together corporate prayer needs that have come to our attention and we'll pray for those sometimes at the mics or sometimes one of the pastors who's leading the service is by god's grace i'll be doing tomorrow evening uh there's a public expression of giving in barnabas uh seen in the book of acts and uh, Acts 4 and he's led to lay a generous gift at the apostles feet His name means son of encouragement, bar meaning son of, son of encouragement, literally. They nicknamed him that because he was such an encourager, and on that occasion, he was felt led of the Lord to give a public gift to inspire others to do the same because so many saints had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and what they had prayed for for hundreds and hundreds of years had now come true. And nobody wanted to leave, and they stayed for the apostles' teaching, and their resources ran out. They maybe were coming for a week. Now they're there for several months before they go back to their respective homes to share and to spread the gospel of Christ. But then there's this private giving as well, where you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so with fasting, you find the church in Acts 13 praying corporately uh, for the Lord's direction, and yet, if, if the only time I pray is publicly, then that's hypocrisy. If the only time I've prayed all week is uh, I, I'm invited to go to the microphone on a Wednesday night and to pray, and I haven't been alone with the Lord, that, that's really a form of hypocrisy. And so, uh, it, again, if that's someone's pattern, I'm not being rigidly legalistic here, but Jesus said, not if you fast, but whenever you fast. Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance. So I don't want to lose my reward here. I will tell you that fasting has been a virtually weekly thing in my life for 40 years. And so it's just part of what I do. The prayer requests are innumerable as to how God intervened in difficult times, in times of blessing. Sometimes you're you're not in a struggle. You're just asking maybe for some... Uh, ministry need that you want to see God put his hand over and to bless. Sometimes as a pastor, I will even ask the church corporately to pray and fast. Oftentimes around Easter, I will say if you're physically able, and again, there are some people, they've got medical issues, and I get that, and I'm not here to give medical advice. um, But with that said, if you're able to fast, it should be a pattern in your life. I'm not saying it should be weekly or monthly, that's between you and the Lord, and you have to come to grips with it. The calls are piling up, so let's go to the next one.
0: alright two five one eight five nine. 843-525-1859. Again, thats two five one eight five nine. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Peter out of Webster, Massachusetts. He writes, what is the difference between the oneness of God, which I believe is Pentecostal, and the Holy Trinity?
2: Well, Uh, Peter, it's a good question. There is a denomination within the Pentecostal realm. They're called Oneness Pentecostals. They're different from four or five other branches of Pentecostalism in that they depart from historical Christianity. And so a classic leader in the Oneness Pentecostal movement would be, say, T.D. Jakes. And so Oneness Pentecostals teach not that God is that uh, they affirm that he's one, and that's a certainly an expression of orthodoxy, but they deny his triunity. And so the Bible teaches not that there is three gods, but there is one God who exists in three co-equal co-eternal persons. So there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, The Spirit is not the Father. They are co-equal, co-eternal. In oneness Pentecostalism, they teach what's called uh, a a 2nd and 3rd century heresy known as modalism. And it is a heresy. It's a false teaching. It departs from historical Christianity. And so as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. And when modalism was posited, all the church fathers fought against it. They ruled it as heretical. It raised its ugly head again, in the early 1900s here in this country. And again, I want to be fair to Pentecostals, though I don't agree with a, a large part of their doctrine, like you know, speaking in tongues as they posit it, because it's not anything like what is done in Acts, or that you can lose your salvation. Um, there are Pentecostals who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Oneness Pentecostals are heretics. So they say, well, the Father becomes the Son. And at another point, the Son becomes the Spirit. And another point, the Spirit becomes the Father. No, that's denying that God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So your question, Peter, is an armchair question, and I spend four one-hour sessions on this in what we call our discovery class. This is our class that grounds new believers at Community Bible Church. It's 45 weeks long, and... Sadly, most believers have not been grounded in the basics. If Dr. Graham was right, 90 to 95% of those who have been born again have remained babies in Christ. They've never grown. They've never matured in their faith, and sometimes because they've not been taught the basics. Now, the Discovery class is available at Search the Scriptures, and it's under the title of Basic Discipleship. So if you go to search the scriptures, type in the search bar, basic discipleship, you want to listen to the handout, and it's like a 35-page handout that you can print out. You have to fill in the blanks as you listen to the messages, and people are free to copy it with just as it is. They can't change anything, all the copyrights on it and so forth. But I think that would answer your question, that the Old Testament teaches the triunity of God. And certainly the New Testament in full bloom affirms the triunity of God. Now, don't ask me how God can be three-in-one, except that he has the three-in-one model written all over the universe. Think about time. There's past time, there's present time, there's future time. But the present is not the future. The future is not the past. The past is not the present. They are, they are divisible, but they are inseparable. And so think about spatial relationships. There's height, there's depth, the width. The width is not the height. The height is not the depth. The depth is not the width. They are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other, and yet they are distinct. And so, as Christians, we do not worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So, Peter from Webster Mass, great question. Go to Search the Scriptures. Go to Basic Discipleship. Pull up the 35-page handout on the Doctrine of the Trinity, and it will walk you through, I think, very clearly what you need to know. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning... Our next question comes from Jeremiah out of Lafayette, Indiana. He writes In light of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, were our founding fathers actively sinning when they started the American Revolution? Because it seemed that God blessed that revolution in miraculous ways, even though it was based on taxation. How would you best advise today's believers biblically in regards to submission if a civil war, quote unquote, happened in America from a possible backlash of the progressive agendas of our government and the World Economic Forum. I pray that this does not happen, but it seems like the divide between American citizens are growing by the day. Thank you.
2: Well, let me start first with your initial question that comes up from time to time. And by the way, I have a whole sermon on this in the Romans series. If you go to Romans uh, 13, if you're listening to me, you might want to download the Search the Scriptures app. And I hope that many of you listening, if you don't follow Search the Scriptures on YouTube, that you'll go to YouTube, type in Search the Scriptures, and subscribe. That will help us to get the Word of God out there. It's a new account. I think we have slightly over 1,000 followers, having only been opened a couple of months. But the more people that follow the more opportunity we'll have to get God's Word out there. But sadly, some have said that the United States was actually born out of a violation of Romans 13, and that God blessed the country not because of their disobedience, but because in spite of their disobedience. And of course, if you combine a lack of knowledge on American history— and a misguided interpretation of Romans 13, someone might come to that conclusion. I've got Romans 13 opened before me. But let me just say that the the founding fathers, they rebelled against Great Britain, because not because they were trying to be anarchists uh, and violate Romans 13. And let me say, Romans 13, by no means, <coughs> excuse me, is an endorsement of Of every government that is described. In Scripture, you know, God is the one who initiates the family, which has its own government. He initiates the church, which has its own government, and He initiates civil government. So, there are three great institutions that God uh, establishes. Take, for instance, the family, which by the way is the very first institution that God ordains. He doesn't give a man who's to be the shepherd, the leader, the servant, the one who loves his wife sacrificially, he doesn't give that man unbridled authority. If a man, for instance, is beating up on his wife and abusing his children, he's basically abdicated his right to rule. He has lost his privilege as the head of the home, and he needs to repent. Likewise in church leadership. Again, think your way through this. God has clearly established lines of leadership in the church, and I know some churches are run more like a democracy than the way they are unfolded in Scripture. When the writer of the Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give watch over your soul. Those who will give and encounter a stricter judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, the reward seat of Christ— You know, there's an assumption here that there's leaders in the church who rule. God speaks through Paul, but those who rule well. Well, listen, if a pastor, a leader, an elder of a church has compromised himself, say morally, then that church has a responsibility to remove him from leadership because he's disqualified himself. It's not an issue of forgiveness. If a pastor acts immorally he can be forgiven but he's abdicated his right to be a leader in the church and a church should remove such a pastor if they are if they are basically abdicating uh, behavior that's not consistent with scripture and if a person attends a church like that and the leadership refuses to do what god commands them to do then they should find another church so Now take it to the arena of civil government. Here in Romans 13, God is not endorsing every kind of government any more than he endorses every form of family leadership or church leadership. And so in describing here authorities, he says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. devoting themselves to this very thing. So God is clear, and remember who's ruling when Paul writes this, very similarly to when Peter gives common advice in his first epistle. Nero is in charge. Nero was a wicked man, and of course, after Romans and 1 Peter is completed, uh, when he decides to clean up Rome, he wants everything to glitter and sparkle. He doesn't like the way the poor slums look, and so he has them burned. Well, there's an upheaval amongst the people, and so he blames the Christians. You know, these folks who talk about in their book about calling fire down from heaven, they did it. And then to affirm his lie, he took them and dipped them in oil and made them human flames in his garden. Uh, So remember, Paul is functioning under a very evil government, and he is affirming indeed, that it is the minister of God to you for good. And it is supposedly supposed to praise those who do good. And so really it has a twofold uh, responsibility. I think maybe the latter should be done consistently and righteously and judicially. Um, The latter is that they are to punish evil, not made up evil, not supposed evil, but real evil. And they are also to praise that which is good. So God gives government the responsibility to punish the wicked and to reward and to protect the righteous. And nobody wants to live in a culture that doesn't do that. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, they failed enormously. But when you think about 18th century British rule over the colonies, remember for 11 years, sadly, kids don't read history anymore unless they're homeschooled. They get a very distorted view of history now in the government school system. But for 11 years, our founders petitioned the king to stop the unlawful, unbiblical actions against the colonists. And their grievances were ignored. And then to double down, King George III sent 25,000 troops and they came for the purpose to show that the King of England was in charge. They began to seize property. That's called stealing. They were invading homes. They were imprisoning people without trials. They were in violation of their own Magna Carta. Some of the principles of our own, um, our own constitution is based on the Magna Carta. Um, the English Bill of Rights was being in violation. And they wrote to King Henry III, King George III and said, listen, if you're going to continue to do this, then we're going to separate from Great Britain. So this went on for a period of years. And if you read some of the historical writings, there's a place in Worcester, Massachusetts called the um, Antiquarium Society, and they have the largest uh deposit of colonial writings anywhere in the world it's an amazing building and place to visit my hometown was there and you can go and actually read the original documents you put on these white gloves and it's a you go into a particular room and sometimes you get to actually handle the original documents under supervision with that all said for 11 years they expressed their grievances and they didn't want to rebel against the king but who fired the first shot well you've got the massacre of 1770 you have the bombing that took place in boston you had uh the first war the shot supposedly that was heard around the world in lexington and and unless you're just a pacifist and you believe that there's no biblical basis for taking up arms which is not something the scripture teaches i have a sermon online called I think it's called God, Government, and Guns, and I deal with this whole subject of pacifism. And listen, this is, a, this is an important issue. They used to teach this in the armed services, and sadly today many are not being taught this. And so when they get into a war situation, you can't question, do I have the moral authority from God to take the life of another person who's performing evil? And the answer is yes, based on what Holy Scripture teaches. And so, again, in their own writings, they would appeal to Scripture that they did not want to uh, violate the Scripture. They, didn't, they even quoted Romans 13, and they recognized that civil disobedience should be the last um, you know, rung on their ladder that they would climb against, um, against the king. And look, you have people in the Bible, read the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11— Heroes like Daniel and his three companions and the Hebrew midwives and Moses who who stood up against the civil authority of the day. And clearly, when God's law is being violated against us, then we do have a civil right. Now, look, there are people in our country that don't like the progressive movement. I don't like it any more than you do. Is that a reason for anarchy and civil war? I think not. That's very, very different. We should do everything through the means that God has given us. Uh, Look, if you vote in ignorance, if you vote for a president like we have now who's running basically on the murder of little babies and his vice president who's supposed to be securing the border, which she has not even visited in the truest sense. She's running around the country talking about how a woman's right to murder innocent life is going to be protected if you vote for them. What kind of an evil, evil platform is this? And this, this administration that is promoting transgenderism, look, we, we, need to, we need to pray and we need to vote and we need to have our voices heard. And I'm not saying that the alternatives are always sweet and magnificent. But you always vote for the best alternative that best represents the Lord in his position. So it would be a shame if the government, look, the FBI put out a thing last year saying that potential, they didn't say terrorists, but potential terrorists, you can read it online, are people, among other things, who are purchasing Bibles in own guns. Hey, that's pretty serious, purchasing Bibles. You're potential terrorists, and certainly there are these armed militias who maybe have um, created a less-than-healthy view of government. Look, I'm commanded to pray for the president of the United States, not because I like him. I don't like him at all. I think he's the worst president I've ever seen in my lifetime. But God doesn't care whether I like him or not. He commands me to pray for him. And many times Christians are complaining more than they are praying, and we need to do both. Why? So that we might have freedom to share the gospel without being persecuted. But it may come down to the time in, a, in our nation where what we do, what we say, our desire to get together and to worship God may be countered. You'd say that could never happen in America. There are things happening in America that we said would never, ever, ever happen, but they're happening. So anyway, it's a fair question. Listen to my sermon in Romans 13. You'll get some more detailed instruction. Let's go to the next uh, caller.
0: All right, Pastor Carl, uh, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. We have a question from Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. It's a live dictation. He writes, if my pastor tells me that I need to experience the love of God because of the sins that I have committed, then can I ask him, how many sins that has he committed since he became a believer?
2: Well, again, I don't know your pastor, and I don't know the context of the question that um, he's saying that he's sinless. I certainly would hope that he was not saying he's sinless. The Bible says, for we all stumble in many ways. Listen, every believer is a sinner. Every pastor is a sinner. The Bible does make a distinction, however, between our position and our practice, between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ, uh, between our relationship with God that is eternal and unbroken, and our fellowship with God that is moment by moment. And so 1 John 1.9 is a passage that is given not to lost people, but to save people. And remember the context He said, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if I say I'm enjoying the Lord and he's ministering through me and God and I are in good terms, but I'm walking in sin, uh, I'm lying and I'm going against what God has revealed in Scripture. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, and there are many expressions of light in scripture, but one certainly is the whole idea that God is holy, that he's without sin. So if we walk in holiness, as God is holy, you might paraphrase it, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, and I guess maybe that's what you're saying. It's implied in the question, but again, I don't want to read into your question. But if your pastor says he has no sin, he says here, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, he'll say, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So I'm assuming you're bristling up because he's saying he doesn't have sin. And now you want to ask him if he's ever committed some sin. Well, that's primarily none of your business. But if he says he's never sinned or he no longer sins, and by the way, there's a group we had a question earlier about one aspect of Pentecostalism. There is a group within Pentecostalism that teaches perfectionism that you can reach a point in your life where you never sin again. That's utter heresy. That's just against the Scripture. In Alberto, I love you, and you've asked so many good questions over the years, but it sounds to me like you're in a crummy church because most of the questions you ask are based on someone who is in a less-than-Orthodox church, and you should find another. But the promise here is if we confess our sins, he, God, is both faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, look, if you're a married guy and you've got a family, you have a responsibility to lead them in truth. And based, if I went back and surveyed all the questions that you've asked that have come out of your church, you're in a crummy church, and you need to get out and lead your family in a healthier way. Good question. Let's go to the next. All
0: right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Mike out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and he writes... Some people believe that they can lose their salvation, and they use Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six. What are Doctor Brogy's thoughts on this?
2: Well, remember the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, and so I would say to you first of all that the writer of the Hebrews affirms the eternal security of the believer. A sit down in one session and just read through the book of Hebrews and make a list of verses that indicate that this is written not to lost people who need to be saved, but to save people who are eternally secure. And even just the let us passages. Again, the writer of the Hebrews includes himself in that. unless you believe that God is writing a book of the New Testament through an unbeliever, you'd have that's the only way you could say that he's not a Christian. And again, as you read through, the whole book, he teaches the doctrine of eternal security. Context is everything. And so the context of Hebrews 6 is this. Concerning him, we have much to say. Concerning him who? Concerning, concerning Melchizedek. Concerning Melchizedek. He has just said, and having been made perfect, he became to all. He's speaking about God the Son. Those who obey him who's the source of eternal salvation. You know what eternal salvation means? It means it's forever. Jesus said, he that believes in me has, present tense, right now, eternal life. If you can tell me how you can lose something eternal, then I can tell you how you can lose your salvation. But you can't do that. And so he's talking about this greater priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood, but the Melchizedek, Malkedex priesthood and how christ exemplified that um and concerning him we have much to say it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of god And you've come to need milk and not solid food so he's dealing with people who have regressed who should have been growing For everyone, he says, who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food, by contrast, is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Milk is used in different ways. Sometimes milk is used of a mature, godly person who is called to like a newborn baby. Long for the pure milk of the word. Sometimes the word milk is used of simpler truths in comparison to more difficult truths. Obviously, you don't start a baby on steak, you start them on milk, and it becomes uh, it's a soft food and eventually solids. So he's dealing with people who should have matured and they haven't. Therefore, that's how 6 1 opens. And so whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, What is it therefore? leaving the elementary teachings about the Messiah, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he's not dealing here with salvation. He's dealing here with maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So who's his audience? It's Jewish people. He's writing before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because they were not practicing the sacrificial system. They were being persecuted. Their businesses were being ostracized. And so they thought, well, you know, maybe I can go back and just practice some of these temple rituals. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no, don't do that. Because when you do that, you're diminishing the importance of what Jesus has done for you. And so he'll say, for instance, in 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? It doesn't say, how will we escape if we reject, but if we neglect. And that's what they're doing. They're neglecting their great salvation. And so here in Hebrews 6, he's dealing with the issue of maturity. These are terms that describe a believer. Some, again, in the Pentecostal realm and in other realms say, well, this is describing someone who is saved and has lost their salvation when it says it's impossible, again, to renew them to repentance. Clearly not. Some have said, and at least they are trying to affirm the doctrine of eternal security, that he's dealing with someone who has only tasted of the... um, of the heavenly gift, but not really drunk fully. Well, the problem with that is the way to the writer of the Hebrews uses the word tasted. He speaks of Jesus who tasted death. Did he just sample it? No, he went through it fully. He's describing here believers. And in these warnings, these are serious warnings to believers. And they have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age. and And if they fall away, they can reach a point where they cannot be restored. How so? Well, in many ways, God illustrates, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, you have believers who came under the most severe discipline. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you died. There's the most severe discipline, premature death. God is not going to allow his word to be mocked. And of course, he says, because he thinks differently, but beloved, verse 9, we're convinced the better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. So he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about the things that accompany salvation. Good question. Again, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So if you have over 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm the eternal security of the believer... You have eight, some would count ten because in parallel text, but the same truth. Some would say, well, there's ten that say you can lose your salvation. Again, you always interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. And again, if you just read the whole book of Hebrews, he's affirming eternal security and he's not denying what he's affirming in the rest of the book. Good question. Let's go to the
0: next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question is a two-part question that comes from Emmanuel out of Jonestown, Pennsylvania. He writes, what are Dr. Brogy's views on cessationism and is Matthew chapter 17, verse 21 inspired? I ask this because some translations remove it or use it just as a footnote.
2: Well, um, I do believe that there are certain gifts that have ceased in their uh, 21st century expression. In fact, they went out of use shortly after the canon of Scripture was completed. They're typically called the sign gifts, healings, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And you might want to, Emmanuel, get my course on spiritual gifts. I did my doctoral dissertation it was entitled, um, if I remember it, "The Development and Implementation of a Spiritual Gifts Base of a Spiritual Gifts Ministry for the Local Church." And so, in that dissertation, uh, I basically, in the appendix, have printed it and have taught it over the decades at Community Bible Church. It's available at Search the Scriptures if you go and type in the Institute of Biblical Studies. Uh, which is a a series of courses that people can take for credit to get a Bible certificate, no charge, a lot of work. Some people just take it for their own personal edification. They don't do the required reading and the supplementary papers that need to be written. Uh, But listen to the course on spiritual gifts. And I walk through this very carefully. Does God still heal and do miracles? Of course he does. God can do whatever he chooses to do. But let me just say as a general rule, God has never done miracles throughout the course of history as normative. Uh, think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the founders of the nation of Israel, none of them ever did a single miracle. Not one. These great men that God used, Joseph, he never did a miracle. In fact, the first cluster of miracles that we find in the Bible come about not 2,000 years before Christ or 6,000 years before Christ, but about 1,400 years before Christ when Moses uh, is called of God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God does those great plagues uh, that he brings through Moses' hand at his command as God instructed him and does other specific miracles, water coming out of a rock, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, he dies, and the mantle is passed on to Joshua. And for a short time, he does them, and then the miracles dry up. There are no miracles until another deep, deep low time in Israel's history, several hundred years later, when God raises up Elijah and Elisha. And these two prophets of God do miracles. By the way, Isaiah never did a miracle. And now, some of the prophets had miracles done to them, Daniel is a prophet. His uh, three friends in the fiery furnace uh, had miracles done to them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we usually know them by their pagan names, but not by their Hebrew names. Uh, Daniel was in the lion's den. He experienced the miracle, but they didn't do miracles. In fact, the next cluster of miracles that take place are through Christ and the Apostles. And so in the early church, to authenticate, as Hebrews underscores, as 2 Corinthians 12.12 underscores, to authenticate that these were God's men, there is a series of miracles being done. In, In addition, some that were done through the church, like the gift of tongues, which was a real language and a real dialect, which was a miracle, not the gibberish that is done in Pentecostalism today, not the gibberish that is perfectly mimicked in Hinduism, amongst cults like the Way International and others. No, these were real spoken languages that someone could miraculously speak, and someone else who didn't know the language could miraculously interpret. And Again, this was one way in which God unfolded Revelation directly. And even then, the spirits needed to be tested. And God gave instructions on that. And again, I walked through this on my handout. It's entitled The Sign Gifts. And I think it's Section 6 or 7 in that Spiritual Gifts course. But you can just thumb through it, and you'll find it. And it's multiple pages long, and it will give you a detailed answer concerning that. Now, the second part, we usually limit questions to one, but uh, I, will, uh, I will respond to your question. Uh, Matthew 17, 21, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, if you're using the New American Standard, you will know that this particular verse is in brackets. There are other English translations that put it as a footnote. So if you're reading the ESV and you're reading Matthew 17, it would jump from verse 20 to 22. And if you weren't paying attention you might miss it, but you might say, wait a minute, it went from 20, what happened to 21? Oh, then down here at the bottom of the page, NIV does the same. Now, the New American Standard puts it in brackets, but they put it in brackets because there are some manuscripts that do not contain this. And so, let me just say, there's a handful of places in the Bible that affect nothing doctrinally. And there are places that were contained even in the manuscripts that were used, the majority texts, we often call them, uh, for the King James, that they did not include. Why? Because clearly it was a scribal note. And so one of the challenges is that on occasion, you know, just like if I opened your Bible, you might have writing out in the margin. Well, they didn't put things out in the margin because they didn't have margins. And so if you were copying a page of Scripture because it was so expensive to do, you would write it word for word. You wouldn't even put spaces between the words. Your mind would have to supply when one sentence ends and another begins. And you would uh, maybe, if it was your own personal copy, put your own little note in there. Well, someone then copied your copy with your note. Then you have to ask, well, was that part of the original? So we have a 101%, we might say, less than that of the Bible. And so you have to ask, what's the original 100%. So the NAS writers believe that though it's not found in some early manuscripts, they contain it in the body because they believe it belongs there, and I do as well. Anyway, we could spend more time on this. You might want to take my course on bibliology. Now, Now, I've Introduce you to two courses, Bibliology. Um, So that would be helpful. I have a whole uh, section about 40 pages long on this very subject. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Todd Friel, whom you hear on Wretched Radio, uh, Monday through Friday here at WAGP, will be preaching at Community Bible Church. We invite you to our 11 a.m. service. We meet at 638 Paris Island Gateway. To members, there's still a few places open for the Valentine's Banquet on Friday, where he will also be speaking. So if you haven't invited a friend yet uh, who is in need of Christ or a church home, you might consider inviting them. And if you're looking for a church home, I would invite you Thursday night to meet the pastor here at Community Bible Church. It will be at 7 p.m. People come in, jot down some questions, and write a few answers for me so I can get to know them. I share our core values and answer their questions as they look for a church home. That will be